Well, this morning we enter into our 18th week of studying the book of James. Hopefully, even though this is our last week of studying James in this sermon series, hopefully it won't be our last week as individuals thinking about James as a church, putting James into practice in our church's life. We want this message to go far beyond one sermon series. So to that end, we are doing something very different than normal this week. Instead of a sermon proper, I'm going to provide us some reflections reminding us of everywhere that we've been. So hopefully you got a handout. And on that handout, every sermon that we had, I tried to write one paragraph summarizing what we discussed. So we'll walk through that. And then I want to draw a connection between the Sermon on the Mount and the letter of James. And then comes to the very strange thing. I'm, I'm going to read the Sermon on the Mount, followed by a reading of James, to help you see how these two things go together. And then we'll end with our normal way of ending a scripture reading, where we declare the word of the Lord, and we'll all respond together, thanks be to God. And that's what we'll do in our normal preaching hour this morning. So if you see on your handout, uh, there are different sections on it. On the back, I gave you a mini bibliography of some resources for further study for those of you who want to take James to the next level. There's some study guides, some commentaries. I'd encourage you to take a look at that as you study James in the future. Let's remind ourselves of what this letter of James is. It's short, but it's incisive, teaching us what it means to walk in the way of wisdom that issues forth in authentic Christianity. So in this letter, James addresses a variety of topics relating to the Christian life, showing us what it looks like to be an authentic Christian. He addresses issues like suffering, desire, speech ethics, anger, social justice, holistic obedience, wise living, and prayer. Every one of these topics contributes to a larger picture of authentic Christianity and a wholehearted commitment to God. So let's remind ourselves of these things as we walk through each section. And I'd encourage you, as I read the paragraph, scan the verses in the book of James. So you might be helped to have your Bible open to James, scanning those verses as I remind you of what we considered. Christians should consider trials an opportunity for great joy even though trials are never pleasant. Because God uses tribulation and trials to make us whole and holy, hardship can give way to happiness as God transforms our suffering into sanctification. For Christians, trials are not something intended to challenge our faith, but to change us into more faithful followers of Christ. In it all, God is extremely generous, offering wisdom to those who ask wholeheartedly, seeking God's wisdom from above. This wisdom is defined as moral skill, and it enables Christians to navigate their trials. But a warning is needed. Christians should not ask God for wisdom half-heartedly, halfway hoping to find help from Him, but also halfway relying on the wisdom of the world. Instead, they should trust God completely and accept the wisdom that allows them to endure trials virtuously as they imitate Christ. Now, Christians might be inclined to think that if they're living wisely, everything is going to go well for them. They'll be happy, wealthy, and healthy. 
But God's wisdom shows us that hardship and prosperity are meaningless metrics for evaluating our success in life because God is going to bless the poor and overturn the fortunes of the wealthy. So Christians must avoid misinterpreting their trials, especially when they respond sinfully to the hardships they face. They might be tempted to think that God is tempting them to sin, that he's out to get them. But on the contrary, God is perfect, holy, and the source of everything good. In fact, he's so good that he can transform death into life by the word of truth. So Christians must receive that word of truth. They must receive it by paying attention through careful listening to God. James pictures God's word as a seed that's planted into the soil of the heart. And that soil needs to be kept free from the weeds of sin, especially the sins of hasty speech and outbursts of anger. Christians must not only receive the word of God, they must also respond to the word of God. Instead of simply hearing the word, they must put the word into action in their lives by doing it. Here, James draws on Jesus' teaching where doing the word is always associated with the blessing of belonging to his family. Now, many people claim to be religious, but fail to be authentically Christian. Authentic Christianity involves controlled speech, possible only through the transformation of the heart, care for the vulnerable, and moral purity. In every age of the church, there's the danger of turning Christianity into mere doctrinal affirmation. So James wants to enliven acts of social justice in keeping with the Old Testament prophetic descriptions and holy living. Favoritism is incompatible with faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Faith and favoritism don't mix because God often chooses the poor to become his kingdom citizens, because the wealthy are generally disinclined to contribute their wealth to kingdom causes, And it's the wealthy who are most inclined to disparage Christ in his kingdom. Though there's a perennial temptation to validate Christianity through association with celebrities, politicians, and the affluent, Christ's kingdom is always comprised of the meek and lowly of heart. Faith without action is a faux faith. It's a counterfeit form of faith. Authentic faith is living and active, demonstrating itself through good works. Although Christianity is not merely a matter of personal piety or spirituality, it includes those things. Although it's personal, it's not private. Instead, it transforms the whole person, working itself out in doctrinal fidelity, love for God, and love for others. In other words, authentic Christianity involves the whole person, head, heart, and hands, as it infuses all of life. Teachers must be especially cautious when it comes to the disproportionate power of speech, though every person should be careful in this regard. The way that a person uses their speech indicates what's going on in the heart. Words function like a thermometer, revealing the state of the heart. Now, the aim of Christianity is not just to suppress speech, but to renew it so that it brings life and flourishing instead of relational harm and death. No one can tame the tongue on their own. This can be done only 
through the transformation of the heart. Authentic wisdom is demonstrated through Christ-like gentleness. In the world system, the point of wisdom is to gain enough knowledge and savvy to get your own way, to exercise power over others. But this so-called wisdom is from below. It's a counterfeit form of wisdom. True wisdom is defined by moral virtue and results in peace instead of the exercise of power over others. It produces a harvest of righteousness instead of self-righteousness. Now, for most of the letter, James has pointed out the hypocrisy that is found so often in Christian communities. Although Christians everywhere claim to be authentic, very often their actions betray the exact opposite. So James reveals that the biggest problem is not fundamentally a problem of our actions, but a problem of our hearts beneath those actions. Our sinful hearts are our biggest problem. The answer to this problem is not a list of rules to follow, but to see the faithful heart of God and to humbly repent. And because God gives grace to the humble, he will exalt all those who humble themselves before him. Jesus brings people to God in their repentance and humility, allowing them to know him and love him, and even more importantly, to be known and loved by him. Still, Christians can sometimes operate as if they don't know and love God, or if God doesn't even exist. Sometimes we live as practical atheists. Practical atheists replace the word of God with their own law as they become judgmental towards other people, while at the same time violating Christ's commands. Hypocrisy and legalism combine in these instances. They also ignore the will of God and live without conscious dependence on him. Now, James has already warned his readers against idolizing money when he addressed favoritism, but now he writes a stern warning against those who do do away with uh, the call of Christ to disregard riches and follow him. He issues a judgment on materialism. Materialism regularly fuels human exploitation and will be met with God's judgment on the final day. In the present, however, consumerism has a way of producing misery as money and materials deteriorate, consuming those who consume all that they can acquire. Coming to the end of the letter, James provides another call to suffer well, returning to that letter's opening topic. He instructs that to suffer well, Christians should wait patiently on God, refuse to complain about their brothers and sisters in the faith, follow the good examples of God's people who have suffered well, especially the prophets in Job, and commit themselves completely to God, trusting him to transform their suffering into sanctification. Authentic Christianity is infused with prayer. Although it is sometimes difficult to believe in the power of prayer, the Bible is filled with examples like that of Elijah that testified to the powerful effect of prayer. Christians should pray in every season of life and in every circumstance. In times of suffering, Christians should pray for wisdom and endurance. In times of sickness or of happiness, Christians should offer prayers of praise to God. In times of sickness, Christians should call for the elders 
for prayer and anointing with oil. Christians should pray in every season of life, and they should do so in a community of confession. Authentic Christianity includes mutual confession of sin, where believers confess their sins to one another, intercede for one another, and declare God's forgiveness that is promised to the penitent. Most New Testament letters end with a benediction or a word of blessing as the author imparts the grace and peace of God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Instead of imparting grace and peace in a benediction, James instructs believers to keep each other accountable so that the community will be defined by grace and peace as sinners are restored to God and to one another. Embedded in these instructions is a hopeful promise that God, through Jesus Christ and by the Holy Spirit, offers forgiveness to all those who repent. This is the meaning of the letter of James. And as we walk through that, I hope at some points it strikes you as this is somewhat disjointed, but obviously it also all goes together. I kind of think that's how James's hearers would have received that letter as someone read it to the congregation for the very first time. And we'll hear it in a few moments. But I wonder if as we walked through that, it struck you how infrequently Jesus is referenced. Jesus appears only twice in this letter. Does that bother you? I feel a little bit strange about it because when I think about being a Christian, I think about Christ. And I would think that every letter in the New Testament is intended to communicate to me more about who Jesus is, to tell me about Jesus, to let me see him. Maybe some of these poetic hymns like Paul has that talks about Christ, the firstborn of the dead, or John in his gospel, the word who became flesh. James has none of that. He has few references to Christ, It doesn't tell us much about Jesus in this letter. So I think this is what James is doing. Instead of telling us about Jesus, he's operating as the voice of Jesus, reissuing Jesus' teaching and parables and conversations for the church. I think his intent in in reissuing Jesus' words is to get us to respond in the same way that Jesus wanted his hearers to respond, which is to become a community of faith, walking in the way of truth that leads to life, to adopt kingdom living, to adopt the kingdom values that transform the way that we live. I don't know if this is the natural way that most Christians think about being a Christian. I think that some Christians, at least, think about being a Christian in terms of me and Jesus. It's all about me and Christ. And to be truly spiritual is to gaze on Christ in all of his glory. And there's something right about that. But James will not allow for us to conceive of Christianity as a private relationship with me and Jesus. Instead, true religion is remaining unspotted from the world, caring for the vulnerable, pursuing after godliness. So if you'll permit me, uh, a Lord of the Rings way of trying to illustrate this. I I think this illustrates for us what James is doing here and what Jesus did. In the Lord of the Rings, and I'm sure you all have read it because you're all the best of Christians, there there is in Middle-earth the slow but persistent spread of the shadow. And as the shadow starts to cover Middle-earth, 
forests go from vibrant and happy to dark and gloomy and dangerous. And, and that happens everywhere that this shadow goes. But in the Lord of the Rings, over and over and over again, you, you encounter communities of resistance. You find dwarves who defeat dragons. And you find elves who go into the forest with their joy and their songs, bringing peace where they go. And you see Gandalf going around, stirring people up to love and to good works, to resist the shadow. Well, I think that's a little bit of what Jesus and James do for us. They say, you know, you're not here just to look at Jesus or even just for yourself, but to participate in a community of resistance against the shadow of sin. We're invited to participate in the mission of Jesus as his kingdom citizens, dispelling the shadow wherever we are. And we could envision this in a bunch of different ways. I want to just lean into one of them because James does. Over and over and over, James talks about the shadow of relational unrest that can creep into the assembly that's present in the rest of the world. And he points out that Jesus is transforming our hearts so that we can be a community of resistance that dispels the shadow. So in Christian churches, there aren't people who argue and backbite and complain and have outbursts of anger and sins of speech that bring death and allow the shadow to dwell over the community. Instead, they speak words of life and grace and forgiveness and truth that brings the light of Christ to bear and sends the shadow running. Now, the Lord of the Rings illustration is so apt because I think Tolkien, as a Christian, draws from language that precedes the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, where the Old Testament is quoted, that the people who live in darkness have seen a great light. And for those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And then in the sermon, Jesus commissions his hearers to be a light that shines forward, to be the light of the world, so that you can be a light for the world, so that they too can experience living in the kingdom light of Christ. Throughout James's letter, he does the exact same thing that Jesus does in his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7 and in the Sermon on the Plain in Luke 16 or 76, 17 through 49. I've given you a chart that kind of goes chronologically through James, listing major themes and giving you references just to the Matthew 5 through 7 Sermon on the Mount, so you can see the correspondences here. And if we were running a plagiarism test on James, he, he would have a red light. He is appropriating Jesus' words for the life of the church, communities of resistance, outposts of the kingdom. So I want to put these two things next to each other so you can hear it clearly and plainly. So what I would encourage you to do, because I'll concede, it's a little bit long. It'll take me about 16 minutes to read the Sermon on the Mount and about 13 minutes to read the, the letter of James. So we're in for a little bit of a ride, but listen for these key words that you see in the chart, these ideas. Follow along in Matthew and then follow along in James as we hear the word of the Lord that will establish us as a community of resistance to the shadow living in the light of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. 
Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven, for that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city situated on a hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand, and it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Don't think that I came to abolish the law and prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all these things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to our ancestors, Do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Whoever insults his brother or sister will be subject to the court. Whoever says, you fool, will be subject to hellfire. So if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled with your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Reach a settlement quickly with your adversary while you're on the way with him to the court, or your adversary will hand you over to the judge, and the judge will hand you over to the officer, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will never get out of there until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. But I tell you, Everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, You must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, 
don't take an oath at all, either by heaven, because it's God's throne, or by the earth, because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head, because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes, and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be children of your Father in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward will you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what are you doing that is out of the ordinary? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward with your Father in heaven. So whenever you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites in the synagogues and on the streets do to be applauded by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Whenever you pray, You must not be like the hypocrites, because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you pray, go into your private room, shut your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. When you pray, don't babble like the Gentiles, since they imagine they'll be heard for their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows the things you need before you ask Him. Therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. Whenever you fast, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, Put oil on your head and wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is a lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spread thin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Do not judge so that you won't be judged, for you will be judged by the same standard with which you judge others, and you will be measured by the same measure you use. Why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam in your own eye? Hypocrite, first take the beam of wood out of your eye, and then you will see clearly to take the splinter out of your brother's eye. Don't give what is holy to dogs, or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet. Turn and tear you to pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Who among you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, do also the same for them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the road broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who go through it. How narrow is the gate, and how difficult the road that leads to life, and few find it. 
Be on your guard against false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravaging wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? In the same way, every good tree produces good fruit, but a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce good fruit. Neither can a bad tree produce good good fruit. Every tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So you'll recognize them by their fruit. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Then I will announce to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the rivers rose, and the winds blew and pounded that house. Yet it didn't collapse because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and doesn't act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell, the rivers rose, the winds blew and pounded that house, and it collapsed. It collapsed with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching because he was teaching them like one who had authority and not like their scribes. Read James's appropriation of Jesus' teaching. James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy, my brothers and sisters, when you experience various kinds of trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance do its whole work, so that you may be whole and complete lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, without doubting. For the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. A double-minded person is unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Blessed is the one who endures trials, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights who does not change like shifting shadows. 
by his own choice. He gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. My dear brothers and sisters, understand this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for human anger does not accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like someone looking at his own face in a mirror. For he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it, and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer who works, this person will be blessed in what he does. If anyone thinks he is religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure religion and undefiled before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, God didn't choose the poor in this world, or didn't God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the kingly law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown steadfast love. Steadfast love triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can this kind of faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. Now someone may argue, some people have faith, others have good deeds. Show me your faith without works, but I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one? Good, even the demons believe, and they at least shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? 
Wasn't Abraham our father, justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by his works, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person isn't justified by works. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Not many should become teachers, my brothers and sisters, because you know that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is mature, able also to control the whole body. Now if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we are able to direct their whole bodies. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it boasts great things. Consider how a small fire sets ablaze a large forest. And the tongue is a fire. The tongue, a world of unrighteousness, is placed among our members. It stains the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is itself on fire by hell. Every kind of animal, bird, reptile, and fish is tamed and has been tamed by humankind, but no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Blessing and cursing come out of the same mouth. My brothers and sisters, these things should not be this way. Does a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers and sisters, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, teachable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. So what is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, don't you know that flirtation with the world is hostility toward God? 
So whoever wants to be the friend of the world becomes the enemy of God. Or do you think it's without reason that the scripture says, God yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will exalt you. Don't criticize one another, brothers and sisters. Anyone who defames or judges a fellow believer defames and judges the law. If you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. And there is one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. So who are you to judge your neighbor? Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are like a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So it is sin to know the good and yet not do it. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail over the miseries that are coming on you. Your wealth has rotted. Your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have stored up your treasure in the last days. Look, the pay that you withheld from the workers who mowed your fields cries out. And the outcry of the harvesters has reached the ears of the Lord of armies. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and have indulged yourselves. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned. You have murdered the righteous. Will not God resist you? Therefore, brothers and sisters, be patient until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth and is patient with it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also must be patient. Strengthen your hearts because the Lord's coming is near. Brothers and sisters, do not complain about one another so that you will not be judged Look, the judge stands at the door. Brothers and sisters, take the prophets who spoke in the Lord's name as an example of suffering and patience. See, we count as blessed those who have endured. You have heard of Job's endurance and have seen the outcome that the Lord brought about. The Lord is compassionate and merciful. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. But let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. 
Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain. And for three years and six months, it didn't rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. 